Hello everybody and welcome to, well, Pottywood. This is the show where we talk about movies with people that make movies. I am one of your hosts, Steve the Hester, and with me as always is... That would be me, Andrew Roger Carson, joining you this week from an extremely hot room where all the windows, doors and everything else have had to be closed just so we get good sound. Yes, truly suffering for your art. Yes, I am. Yes. The sacrifices I make just to make you people happy. And speaking of sacrifices, let's not even beat around the bush with hyperbole and uh, and uh, and a weird intro this week. Let's just get straight into teeth. You're a bastard. I had a really good segue into that too. All right, then give us a segue into it. Come on. Well, we can't now because I needed to get in conversation first, but you just totally cut it <laughs> off. We've got a lot to get through in this episode because we have... We have the one and only David Zucker joining us in uh, in a few minutes, so we need we need to get through this so that we can get lots and lots of lovely material together. We do. Trust me, the the intro was fabulous. It was hilarious, and it might even make its way onto the extended edition. You never know. But we are here in episode six, also known as Return of the Poddy, mm-hmm. hey. or Return of the Pod Eye. Pod Eye. Yeah, it's Star Wars, Steve. Pod- I know you've got to watch it, and it's in the box. But right, trust okay. me, it's, it's a great movie. Right. I have heard of it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I've seen it yet, though. No. No. Anyway, so <laughs> we have to talk here about what's in the box from last week. Yeah. Which was all about teeth. Teeth. Okay. Right. Now, watched it last night. And the whole setup to it is that you have a young girl called Dawn, who is a uh, what's she, what, do you, what do you call them? The, the people that wear the, the pledge rings not to have sex and, you know. Until they're married. Are you talking about Mormons, maybe? Is it just the Mormons? Or is it like I, just I, I was picking Bible up a, a kind of Mormon vibe from them. But what do I know? I'm not a religious person. Anyway, she's uh, she's one of those that wears the purity rings and all the rest of it. And it turns out that she has actually got teeth in her vagina. Big shock! Yes. Now, as you can imagine, things are going to happen in this movie that involve uh, male <coughs> members... Um, uh, being removed from the male personage. But being a 41-year-old man who has seen quite a lot of stuff over the years. Oh, stuff. Okay. Yeah, I've seen a lot of penis as well. Um, But this was marketed as a horror film slash comedy. Yeah, I was sort of more of a dark comedy. One, it's not nearly funny enough to be a comedy. And two, it's not nearly horrific enough to be a horror. And this is my big issue with it. I didn't like this movie, and you think I wouldn't like this movie because of the fact that guys get their dicks cut off by uh, by a vagina with teeth. But no, I didn't like this movie because I just thought it was a really depressing movie. <laughs> I really did. I thought it. The, the basic elements are sex is wrong, sex is bad, men are all bad and they're rapists, women are only going to hurt you and damage you. Uh, the only people that you can count on is your dad and even then he sells her out towards the end to her to a stepbrother and the whole thing is just saturated in this oppressive gray film that i was waiting for everything to kind of start off and go somewhere really early on and it's going to be like a like a traditional horror film because at some point she's reading up about the vagina dentata on the internet and it goes into all this this history about greek myths and her having this this thing that needs to be conquered by a warrior which is in in itself a rather dodgy message to be going on with and so you think okay maybe this is going to ramp up somewhere maybe we're going to end up with an actual kind of you know vagina monster or maybe she's going to be taken over by it she's going to become evil which does kind of get touched on in the end but it doesn't. It doesn't go too far down the horror route for it to be scary. And even though it does have some amusing bits, like the uh, the the gyno exam, which I do have to admit, I was laughing at that scene. It's nowhere near funny enough to to make it worth a comedy. Particularly as in some territories, it had posters which looked like it was straight out of a Farrelly Brothers comedy. That's very true. So. For a movie about vaginal dentata, were you expecting it to be all smiles? No, but I was expecting it. I was expecting there to be more of it, really. It's just a depressing film. I did not enjoy it at all. So uh, you were honestly sat there waiting for Audrey 2 to jump out and 
yes, that would have been preferable. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not even saying that I wanted to see any explicit close-ups or anything. I just wanted there to be something, but there isn't. And the closest that it comes to her becoming any kind of antagonist is right at the very end when yeah, she's yeah. left home and she hitches a ride with some old guy that looks like Freddy Krueger's ball sack. <laughs> and he's not letting her out the car until she does something to him and she gets this really kind of nasty smile of, oh, okay, I'll do something to you. Yes, th- this is the look to camera style thing that was the one ruined part of the movie. But I think it's probably the best movie about vaginal teeth you're going to find. Yeah. If that's your thing. There's all kinds of messages that you can look into it all saying, okay, maybe is it about abstinence and sexually transmitted diseases? Is it about warning of the dangers of men? And, you know, I looked up and the, the, the director slash writer, Michael Lichtenstein, um, is gay. So was it was it then kind of like a like an anti anti-feminist kind of tracts really trying to demonize women i don't know what it is all i know is that by the end of it i just wanted to just forget that i've ever seen this film not because of the fact that guys got their dicks chopped off but because of the fact it's a really depressing downer of a film and i don't want to see it again well you can ask mitchell himself when he's going to be a guest on our show in roughly around six weeks i'm sure he's going to love the feedback from that movie oh yeah so he's he's not he's not i could ask him <laughs> you might scour through this and say, "Ooh, teeth! I wonder what Steve thought of it." I'm sorry, Mitchell, if you're listening. I did not like this film. Sorry, dude. Didn't hey, like it. art is subjective, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Everyone has their opinions, and that was mine. Okay, so you you won't believe this, as we're just about to run into our anniversary spot. But I'm so glad we're not doing this thing through video right now. Because my chair has just decided, no, I don't want to stay at this height anymore. And keeps sinking to the floor. And I'm starting to resemble a giant praying mantis. <laughs> and I keep hitching it up. Do you want a drink? Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> do you remember that, that sketch? Do you want a drink? Yeah, I'll have a screwdriver. Uh, but it wasn't that to do with Red Rock. It was to do with Red Rock. It was Red yeah, Rock which was just before the uh, Naked Gun movies. Which is very ironic, Steve. People are going to think we lined that up perfectly, and we didn't. Steve's just a lot smarter than I am. Really? Could have fooled me. (laughs) So, (laughs) anyway, Anyway, let's move into our anniversary section, shall we? And this week, with music. We watch them again all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. We only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Yep, 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 yep. You know what? I'm starting to think I've got anal dentures that are eating this chair as it's going down. Well, I'm I... here. Yes, yes, I did it. Finally. Every week I've been waiting to get you with that. Perfect. Uh, well, I'm not exploring that one. Let's put it that way. So, Graydon, what, what films have we got this week? Well... This week, we celebrate a bunch of anniversaries, which we will quickly glide through, shall we? Mm-hmm. Can you believe, Steve? I don't know, Andy. That 25 years ago this week, From Dust Till Dawn was released. Ooh. Now, I have seen that movie. Controversially, though, yet again, that is another one that I don't like. Why? Don't stop there. Come on. We're, we're, all, on, we're all on tender hook, Steve. I don't know. Maybe it was the time that I saw it in my... Um... In kind of like my late teens, I was expecting it to be one thing, and it transferred into another one. And uh, I, th- I know that that's what a lot of people like about the movie. Uh, I could probably do with watching it again, to be honest, because it has been probably has been about twenty five years since I actually saw it. But no, I, yeah. I, I, I did. It didn't sit well with me. I don't know it's why. A, it's that kind of grindhouse movie that I think was kind of out of vogue at the time, and this really kind of got those grindhouse movies back noticed again to mm. the point now where you know they're now cult classics. But controversially, I am going to say something about the movie that is celebrating 20 years this week. 20? I have a soft spot for Pearl Harbor. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a great film. But there's something very enjoyable about it. And maybe it's because it is bad to an extent. And, you know, it's 
I don't even I don't even know if I can justify it, but I just have this bit of a fascination with Pearl Harbor. Maybe it's because I went to see it in the cinemas, and it was a huge screen that I saw it on, and and the whole Pearl Harbor fight, which lasts probably about twenty minutes of the entire three hour movie, was spectacular. Was it as good as uh, Torah Torah Torah? No, that is basically the benchmark for Pearl Harbor attacks in my view. But there is something about it that has a bit of a magic appeal for me. I don't know. The one thing which I always always think of when it comes to Pearl Harbor is Don't say that, Team America. It's that song in Team America. I knew you would. Pearl Harbor sucks and I miss you. <laughs> well let's let's add another thirty years onto twenty and let's go back to nineteen ninety one where Mermaids was released. The Ooh. film that launched Christina Ricci on us. No, she didn't. No, ah, no, no. Tell I, I almost said no. She did Beetlejuice, but she did do Beetlejuice. No, that was Winona Ryder. That's Winona Ryder. Yeah, who was also in Mermaids. Yeah, and Cher. God, yes, that was that was before um, the Adams Family, wasn't it? Just before it, yeah. Yeah, I think the Adams Family, the first movie, celebrates this year as well. Oh, we're gonna have to do something about that. Maybe, maybe. And let's talk finally about our ten-year anniversary. And sticking with an old favourite from last week, X-Men First Class is 10 years old this week. Now, that one that I did is an enjoy. X-Men movie. Yes. I did enjoy that one. I thought it was really, really good that the way they were able to restart it, how they were able to make things make sense and still keep the original continuity. And I still love that Logan cameo. That was in that one, wasn't it? That was in so, that one, yeah. Yes, yes it was. So I get confused over certain X-Men films because I was reading up before about uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. And, you know, this film is known for being absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. And the worst, well, one of the worst, I don't think it's the worst anymore, but it's uh, one of the worst X-Men movies. But Deadpool probably wouldn't be Deadpool today without the disaster of Deadpool of X-Men Origins. Yeah, it's true. But uh, just going briefly to uh, First Class of One, one thing which has always got me in that movie is I can't remember what the character is, but there's a character in there whose whose power is that he can adapt to any environment. You know, he sticks his head in a fish tank, he grows gills. Right. And so the bad guys show up at the little compound where they are, and one of them basically fills his head with a load of energy. And then he dies. He's like, okay, aren't you supposed to be able to adapt and change? How'd that work? I don't know. Maybe you're still suffering from when he met that girl with the vaginal teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't get snappy. Oh, yes. I was chomping at the bit for that. (laughs) Well, I don't know if we've exhausted our uh, vaginal dentata. I I know that Neil somewhere is laughing his head off because he watched it last night. I've not asked him about it yet. I don't even know if he's still alive. Oh, God, it all depends on how far through he got. I really wanted to turn it off about halfway through. No, you've got to see these things through. Yeah. Got to see them through no matter what. I know. I'm just hoping there's going to be something better when we do what's in the box later on. Yes. But anyway, now it's time to focus on, I guess, our very special guest this week. We have a great friend and mentor to myself over the last few years. He's a writer-director of the iconic Zucker-Abram-Zucker team behind the comedy classics The Naked Gun, Basketball, Kentucky Fried Movie, and, of course, Airplane. His movies have topped greatest comedy polls for the past four decades, and their influence on comedy has rippled through motion pitches still to this day. He's a producer. He's now an author with his new book, Before the Invention of Smiling, The Incredible Journey of the Zucker Family, From Horse and Buggy to Indoor Plumbing. He joins us today from Los Angeles. David, it's a pleasure to have you join us this week. Hi, I'm happy to be here, or anywhere. <laughs> uh, in regards to the book, and uh, this is something I really wanted to jump into at the beginning uh, of our talk today. Uh, we've both read it over the course mm-hmm. of uh, this past week, and uh, it's just a fantastic documentary of your early family history. And the structure of the book is is so involved. I felt the written form of it pulls you into this journey that you've kind of undertaken from the interviews you performed being written exactly as they were said. Right. It, it's divided into, I don't know, five chapters, I guess. But the first two chapters are in an interview with my grandmother. Uh, and I'm so happy that I managed to get that 
uh, it was back in 1976, went back to Milwaukee for a visit and uh, having lived in L.A. since 72. And, I, you know, we grew up listening to my grandmother's stories. And she was talking about her growing up in this little village in Hungary. And uh, they had to escape in the early 1900s. And they had to walk over the border at night. And I thought that was pretty cool adventure because by that time I was into Davy Crockett and, uh, and history. That got me interested in history. So I thought... Look, our family has our own family history. I want to find out all about it. But she was she was interested. She loved to talk about it, and I was the only one of her ten grandkids who listened. It's not really a question, but uh, I was reading through the book, and I did see the mention of Hester Street in New York because that's my surname. So it always kind of makes me a little bit a uh, little bit excited whenever I see that. But she really didn't like New York, did she? No, she. You know, I grew up in Milwaukee, of course, so I felt very fortunate that they did skip New York. But other people in our family did settle early on in Milwaukee, probably right around 1900, maybe a little before. And so they, you know, they skipped New York. And Grandma said she saw New York and and didn't like it. So it's it was too crowded. We were, I guess, we were more of a small town, provincial type family, which, you know, really served us well when we started writing the movies and, you know, getting into the entertainment business. I think it gave us a, a different perspective because when you come from Milwaukee, you know, you're not, you're not anything hot stuff. Uh, everything came from New York or LA and came to the Midwest. Uh, and so our doing airplane eventually was, we were able to throw it back at everyone. And, uh, and and so that was it wasn't we saw it as an advantage. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to believe uh, that the book actually starts with a near tragedy involving this this flood, and it's it's weird yeah. to read that and consider that comedy may have never been the same had that That's rescue right. yeah. not taken That's place. Right. Yeah, and, and and I say I relate this story that you know they they finally got to higher ground, and uh, and my grandmother was essentially not breathing. She was one year old or less than one during this flood. Uh, and, and so, uh, and there was a man who was sitting nearby who said, what do you care if you lose one kid? You know, there's, you, you got eight more or whatever it was, but it kind of shows the, the importance. And there's a, there's a whole Talmudic saying about if, you know, you save one life, you save an entire world because, you know, who knows how many people are to, are to come after. And, but you're right. It certainly did save comedy. <laughs> so, that's right that's what i'm concerned with i don't care about the lives yeah so yeah hey, well, during the book you you're talking about how you took a break from i think it was scary movie three that you just finished shooting yeah and you went just over finished. to europe in the book you you talk about how oh, you got directed through this town to that town to this landmark yeah. to that landmark and they were all still there in europe but then later on in the book all the stories about the the important buildings in milwaukee they're all gone they're all gone well Actually, uh, in my grandmother's little village, all of the buildings were gone too. I, what I did discover was the exact place where their house was, and uh, the uh, the current houses there were probably built on the foundations of where that whole thing was in my grandmother's time. So, but everything's everything's gone in Milwaukee, including that train station as well. Which then, like yeah, a beautiful there was building. A, oh, it was beautiful. They had two beautiful train stations, and they demolished both of them. I learned later from someone on one of these Milwaukee websites, the history websites, that the Milwaukee Road train station uh, was burned in a fire. The horrifying uh, aspect of it is that they replaced it with horrible modern buildings. And and the 60s was a awful time for architecture. Uh, you've spent a few decades now working on compiling all of this information together and doing a lot of independent research. How much history kind of adorns your house now that I'm obviously going to pick up on the next time I'm over with these kind of artifacts from your family history that's been passed down to yourself? There were a couple of items that were brought over from Europe. Uh, one was the trunk that they use, and I have it pictured in the book. And I have that in my living room. And uh, the other were two, two brass candlesticks, which my great-grandfather on one of his buying trips to Budapest or, uh, or Prague and so, uh, and he and he brought back these candlesticks because his wife 
my great-grandmother was pregnant at the time, so he was hoping for a boy. And the story is that he came back, found out it's a girl, but he gave her the candlesticks anyways. You know, this is how sexist everything was then and <laughs> how, how unwoke it was. But people used to spit tobacco into spittoons, so things change, you know, <laughs> sometimes for the better. I mean, the, the, the one of the great things about the book, I mean, obviously, uh, your grandmother, Sarah, is a standout character. She has this amazing memory of all these events in the family yeah. history, which obviously is yeah. the, the driving force of this book. It's actually made me want to go and explore my family history. It was that kind of involving as a read, and I couldn't put it down. That was just an incident with some super glue. But yeah. it is a fantastic right. book, and, and people should definitely take a look at it. It is available on Amazon. And it's a, it's a great read. Yeah, it is. I've thoroughly enjoyed it while I've been reading it, and not uh, not trying to suck up, but it was a it was a fun read. Yeah, especially for you two because it's it's mostly pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If it was written so, on crayon, it'd be a classic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's so easy to read it, and but I hope it is inspiring for people to you know research their own family history and and mainly to get these stories down before people die. I mean, all these stories. All these stories would have been just lost. I was the only one who, you know, saw value in it and uh, recorded it. So it will be there for my kids to see. A lot of British comedy acts and, and actually a lot of later American comedy acts always tend to point to things like Monty Python as their influence when it comes to the, the surrealistic and the absurdist comedy. But where did yours come from? Did that all come from your family? Were, were you looking at uh, looking at American comedians or where did it all stem well, from? We- we did like uh, Woody Allen and the Marx Brothers. You know that, that was kind of our comedic influences. But and and our own family. There in the book, there's a picture of me as a four year old, and I'm standing on a chair in between my dad and my grandfather. And my dad and I are wearing bow ties. Mine, I'm sure, was a clip on. And my grandfather, to match us, you know, as a kind of a goof tie his necktie into a bow tie. And it looked ridiculous, but he's posing in an absolutely straight face, which makes it funny. And I think we kind of grew up with that kind of attitude. My dad would say a lot of funny things. He wouldn't tell jokes, like two guys walk into a bar. Not He didn't know any jokes, but he would say funny things. And part of what was funny about it is that he would say it with a straight face and not wink. So I think... Jerry and I definitely absorbed that. And that really became Leslie Nielsen, who would say very funny things, silly things, but with a straight face. We love Jim Carrey or Kevin Hart or Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin, but those guys are funny guys. They're, they're funny comedians. And it's a different style. It's actually something I did want to touch upon that later. But I was, I was just seeing when you were first kind of starting out uh, before the Kentucky Fried Theater was established, you were starting out doing job. I believe were you gluing furniture? Yeah, I had I had summer jobs, and one of the jobs I had was at a place called the Milwaukee Chair Factory, and uh, I was gluing foam cushions to the back of wood back chairs, and you know before they would stitch the seat cover on. I, I had a spray booth, and occasionally a fly would drift into the spray booth and I would and, and I would I would nail the fly with my sprayer but not only that I would then write down with a with a marker you know the date and the time of the fly's death and 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 paste it up on the still drying glue with the fly and pretty soon everybody in the factory was drifting around to see this fly museum and uh, <laughs> so they, they they rotated me to a to a more isolated part of the factory, where, where I I wouldn't disrupt anything. Yeah, that is genius. I love that. I absolutely love that. Oh god. Um, one of the names used to come up in um, Kentucky Fried Movie was uh, Samuel L. Bronkovitz. Oh yeah, Samuel. Well, we were. Yeah. yeah. Where did that come from? Well, we just thought it sounded like a real producer name, you know, of the 1930s, like like Louis B. Mayer, you know, all these guys, you know, Samuel L. Bronkowitz Productions, because 
when we were doing Kentucky Fried Movie, we had no credit ranking and everybody was demanding money up front and uh, we couldn't afford, we didn't have any money. We were, you know, waiting for some money to come in and it was done on the fly. And so we renamed our company uh, Samuel L. Bronkowitz Productions. And so when our producer would call for a, you know, lighting kit or something, uh, they would say, well, who, who is this for? And he'd say, Samuel L. Bronkowitz Productions. And the lady on the other end, one of them said, is he still making pictures? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it worked. I can just picture somebody dressed up in a fat suit going, okay, who am I? Yeah, Samuel L. Brankowitz. Yeah. Okay, I'm right. Samuel L. Brankowitz. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we actually, and then it, when we did the trailer for the movie, we cast a guy, this, you know, 80-year-old guy, uh, and said, this is Samuel L. Bronkowitz. And we had, he was in a wheelchair with a blanket over his lap and, you know, really looked like he, he had a, 10 days to live or something. So, and he said, you must see my new motion picture, Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> yeah. That's genius. But the, the Kentucky Fried Theater, it kind of had its genesis upon, I believe, a viewing of Void Where Prohibited by Law. Yes. Uh, what was it about this performance that kind of ignited that creative endeavor for you guys? Well, you know, I had wanted to get into film, but I was working for my dad as a construction expediter. He was building an office building at the time, and I didn't know how to get into the, the film business. My dad said, well, my friend Bill Kesselman uh, has a franchise business, and he he's using these videotape decks. And at that time, they were you know, huge boxes with reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape, half-inch tape. And I said, well, I don't, I want to do film. What would I do with video? Anyway, so some months later, I went down to Chicago to visit a, a girlfriend, and we went to this show called Void Were Prohibited by Law, and it was a video show. And they, you went upstairs to the top floor, or the second floor, and it, it was a loft in Newtown, Chicago, and we sat on a gigantic waterbed and watched a, a television monitor and it played like an hour and 10 minutes of, of these jokes and sketches and uh, mock ads. And that was an epiphany for me. I thought, okay, this is what we can do. We can do this and we can charge a dollar or whatever it is and start our own theater. And that's what we did. So I drove right back up to Madison where my brother was uh, a junior in uh, college and i said we can start a theater we can borrow this videotape blah 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 so we did that's exactly what we did and we recruited jim abrams and another friend uh from milwaukee from our high school dick chudnow and the four of us uh, started kentucky fried theater so it obviously this all leads to the kentucky fried movie yeah you had the uh the fistful of yen the answer the dragon right. parody because that takes yeah. up such a big chunk of Kentucky right. Fried Movie, were there any other ideas that were kind of like flying around at the time before you settled on that one? You know, I'm not sure what the genesis of that was, except that we all went to see, uh, you know, Enter the Dragon in the theater. And we left the theater just, you know, we were karate chopping with our hands and doing Im imitations of the actors. And we thought it, we loved the movie. But anything we love, we can spoof. And because we also loved airport movies and uh, detective movies and James Bond movies. So we decided to do a 20, 25 minute segment, a movie within a movie inside of Kentucky Fried Movie. And it really helps break up the, the whole sketch feel of it. Yeah. And Kentucky Fried Movie obviously was the kind of your launch pad into the world of motion pictures. Obviously, you were not a director back then, but was John Landis kind of a requirement from maybe the financiers or, or the studio execs to have a qualified director on board? Well, it wasn't a studio. It was United Artists Theatre Circuit, which right. was a uh, exhibition chain. We shot with Landis a 10-minute short, uh, which was consisting of five of the sketches that went into, or four of the sketches that went into Kentucky Fried Movies. So we needed to prove that we could do it. And that's what got it. That's what got the movie made. And so UA Theater Circuit financed the entire, you know, $670,000 budget of the movie, which which is now like half of our catering budget on a movie. <laughs> and uh, 
we did it as the team. Landis directed, and we we had written the first draft of Airplane before that, and we wanted to uh, we wanted to direct Airplane, but we weren't ready. Our experience being on the set of Kentucky Fried Movie really, you know, we went to school and we realized what was what was going on with about directing and. We were confident that we could direct. And then when we got to Paramount with Airplane, uh, then we insisted that we had to direct it. And that was a whole other struggle. How much of the uh, Kentucky Fried movie was original? How much came from existing theater sketches? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, I think it was about half of it was from the theater, from the show. They were bits from the show. And you can kind of tell there's commercial spoofs and, you know, like the sex record and uh, a lot of that stuff. And the other half like Fistful of Yen, was new material written ex- especially for the movie. You know, the that, that sketch in Kentucky Fried Movie of the, the newscaster watching the couple, that was, uh, <laughs> yes. we, we did that sketch on stage. We had the actual television monitor on stage and then the couple making out on, in, you know, with their backs to the audience and, uh, you know, complete with the, the fellatio and the whole thing. So yeah, <laughs> and when I think when I think of my mom and dad coming to see the show, oh my god, was it that was a that, classic? Of, so this is what you're doing, yeah. So this is what you're doing, and then you know, in the in before the invention of smiling, you know, we have the story about uh, you know having to show uh, my grandmother and my aunt being Uncle Maury, you know, the Kentucky Fried movie, and so we we showed them an the edited version. And it backfired when they actually went to the theater to see it, so they could they wanted to, they they wanted to see our names on the big screen, and essentially it's a porn movie, you know. And so, oh my god, oh yeah, especially like, the Catholic high schools in trouble, high school girls yeah. in trouble. Oh, oh god, yeah, oh my god, yeah. It's like <laughs> I believe that that was cut out of um, I think it was Irish broadcasts. I believe. Really. Yeah, I know that somewhere one country actually did cut that entire scene out. (laughs) Yeah, oh my God. You know, all I can think of, maybe they went out to get popcorn during that. I don't know. (laughs) One thing, just before we move on, there's one thing that always stuck with me about that sequence, and that's with the the sexual... Never has there been such perversion. You've got the little person that's whipping the two girls, and you've got one girl who's desperately trying to cover her face by burring into her arm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, and then we we'll, we have a funny picture that hangs in my office today. Of you know, we had that exact scene in the background. They were ready to do a take, and we quickly came and posed on our knees in in the foreground. You know, looking over a script. You know, doing a script conference, and in I've, the back. Yeah, it's true. I have seen this picture in his office. So obviously, naturally, this has kind of all led to airplane. Uh, now regarded in most circles as the greatest comedy of all time. Naturally, like every success story, it has that story of struggle. Exactly how many studios turned down this for petty reasons? Well, uh, every studio. I mean, whatever, however many studios there were in Hollywood at the time. Eight, something like that. I mean, they absolutely just turned it down. And we would go in and pitch, and they liked us, and you know, because we were nice and charming and whatever, but... They didn't. They didn't get the movie, and I think you know. I later read that some actor who just died. He was a sketch comic. He said that he was offered the part. He wasn't really, but the studio sent the script out to a lot of people, and he read it and he thought it was just a bunch of puns and and slapstick. We wouldn't have cast him anyways. Bob Hayes was was the choice really from from the moment he came in to read. He was the one. You know, the movie was. I mean, you could read it, and it, it would be it would be hard to imagine because I'm sure even Michael Eisner, who greenlit the thing for Paramount, probably imagined Bill Murray or Chevy Chase doing the the main part, and yeah. maybe Harvey Corman and Dom DeLuise because that's how movies were done up to that time. Part of what made it so difficult to get the thing financed was that uh, we were pitching this as it was going to be a comedy without comedians. You could liken it to Columbus saying, you know, we're going to sail west and there's going to be land out there. And the conventional wisdom was, no, you're going to, the earth is flat and you're just going to fall off the edge of the earth. You can't do that. And we were against going, again, going against all convention. So, but we, we do give a lot of credit to Michael Eisner, who one guy. It just took one guy. 
No, that's usually the case in a lot of Hollywood stories. But the, when you were going through it and going through the editing process, apparently you took it round to universities and you said that uh, as soon as a joke wasn't getting a, a laugh, it got cut. Now, did yeah. you end up reusing any of those in later movies or did they just all just... No. No, if it if a joke doesn't get a laugh, that means it's not funny. We, you know, it's, you know, you you have to have some humility to do comedy because if you're arrogant, <laughs> you say, well, the audience is wrong. I mean, you'll get you'll get a movie that's greeted with silence. So, uh, you know, you have to listen to the audience, and and we would and we trimmed it. Comedy needs pace uh, because of the momentum, and that the weaker jokes are uplifted by the fact that it's going so fast and. The audience is already laughing. So there's a definite psychology that works there. And so we previewed it like at about six different colleges. And after each preview, we would do more trimming and, you know, rearrange some things. And uh, and that's how it has worked for every movie. And what that means is that the first preview is going to be a disaster. And that's what it was for Airplane and Kentucky Fried Movie, and all the naked guns, the scary movies, everything. So I think you kind of touched on it a bit earlier on when in obviously casting non-comedians in your movies. So did you always try and find that whenever you bring uh, a new serious actor into comedy, are they trying too hard to be funny initially? Uh, actually, not so much anymore. I mean, it always takes directing. Even with Leslie, who was a veteran, he, he has to be directed. You know, some people... It's better if they don't have any experience with comedy, like Priscilla Presley. And Priscilla, I, I remember not having to really give her much direction. She was just great because all she knew was serious acting. So she, she was always great. But also Charlie Sheen knew exactly what to do. Yeah. And uh, he, he, he was so smart and so good, such a great actor that, that he was able to do it very easily. And... Uh, so I, I worked with him on the scary movies. You know, Simon Rex was great. Um, and uh, Anna Ferris was was also very good at doing this, this kind of comedy and not trying to be funny. And so, you know, I think pretty much people get used to it, you know, after the first day. And uh, and I, I keep them in the pocket and keep them, keep them being serious. Well, as time's gone on, attitudes have changed to comedy and I suppose we're probably going to be talking more about this later but there there's certain jokes that you look back in the movies and you start thinking mm, that really doesn't fit well do, do you regret some of them or do you oh yeah oh yeah some things you, you regret and then you you wish you could have it back and it's things that make you cringe Vince Lombardi the famous football coach said that uh we're going to shoot for perfection knowing we're never going to reach perfection, but in the pursuit of uh, perfection, you can reach excellence. And, you know, and this was the probably the greatest coach who ever lived, and he knew it wasn't going to be perfect. And so in any artistic endeavor, I'm sure, you know, there's just, there's those things that you'd, you'd like back, you'd like to do over again. And But, you know, we try to learn from each movie and, that's why we kind of evolved these uh, 15 rules, which which are very helpful to us in keeping us from doing what we shouldn't do. Was there any kind of backlash from Universal, who were behind the airport franchise? I mean, they were still releasing the airport movies around that time, I believe, the Concorde, right. oh, movie, yeah. which I think were their last one came out the same year. Uh, so was there any kind of uh, hostility or lawsuit threats or anything along that line? Not lawsuit, but they, well, you know, there's always a threat of a lawsuit, but <laughs> they, they, we wanted to use Helen Reddy as a singing nun to talk to the little girl. And they said, that's a character from our airport movie. You can't use that. This wouldn't happen nowadays. Everybody's used to spoof. But so, and that's why we have our stewardess, Lorna Patterson, singing to the little girl, but she borrows a guitar from a nun. So that's how we kind of got around it, you know, alluded to uh, that airport scene. And then they gave us a lot of trouble with the title. They didn't want us to use the title airplane. And so they compromised that we were able to use airplane domestically in North America, but everywhere else uh, it had a different title. So in France, it was the uh, 
is is there a pilot in a plane and in germany is the the crazy flight of the incredible of the crazy airplane something like that uh and it was different titles and oh yeah in in the uk it was flying high which which really? may have been yeah it was called flying high i'm not sure what it would have been in australia but. that is weird to me because i've only ever heard of it as airplane yeah yeah i, I can imagine when they first released it obviously when, when the airport they, movies yeah. were still going around yeah. to avoid confusion so yeah but time, we, we got a lot of problems from universal and we got a lot of problems from first from paramount who didn't want to let us direct it but we still controlled the script we didn't sign the script over until we had permission to direct and then the the directors guild uh, also wouldn't let us have uh, three man director credit and that was a scary thing and i i was going wait a minute can they do that and our producer howard Koch said they've never won a lawsuit you can sue them but then it might be too late so what happened was that Jerry went downtown to the L.A. City Hall, had his name legally changed to Abraham's N. Zuckers. And, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, the Directors Guild computer spat out a card that said Abraham's N. Zuckers. And when they found out about it, they were furious. But there was, there was nothing they could do because we, we were going to do that. And then... Well, Andrew, when you were at my office, you probably saw the uh, the clapperboard for uh, yes for airplanes says Abraham's and Zucker's, and it said that you know because we didn't get our waiver from the DGA until two weeks into shooting, so it was already Abraham's and Zucker's. Well, uh, your mum shows up in airplane as uh, the the woman that's trying to put on her makeup during yes during right. all, and uh, she's probably most recognisable from the scene in the Naked Gun where she tries to kill Papshmir. Yeah, um, I must, yeah. How supportive was she of you and your brother getting these films together? And have you tried to squeeze in any other relations over the years? Well, they, they were, my parents were very supportive. Although I don't think if you're from Milwaukee and, you know, your sons go out west to become Hollywood, they, I don't think they, in their wildest dreams, believed what was going to happen because it's just, this stuff doesn't happen. But they were so pleased and so much enjoyed our success. And they came out for the shooting of every movie. And they would come out for a visit and stay for a couple of weeks. And my mom would always have a part. And my sister always had a part. And my mom was also in Ghost. My brother directed Ghost. and uh, Yes, she was she, the bank teller, wasn't she? The, the bank teller who uh, had a scene with Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Patrick Swayze. And it was great. She also had a uh, scene in basketball. As late as that, we were still doing the. And she was in. She had cameos in uh, Naked Gun Two and a Half, Thirty Three and a Third, all the movies. This kind of reminds me now. I kind of have to add this in now that it's kind of been brought up. But uh, obviously, you kind of spoofed the infamous pottery wheel. Oh yeah, <laughs> scene. That's right. Go, was that a deliberate jab at your brother for having the most successful movie of the year? <laughs> no, and well, it wasn't a jab. I I saw Ghost. I was I was all excited. I called him immediately and I said, "Well, first of all, I loved the movie. I thought it was terrific." And and then I said, "We can spoof this." <laughs> yeah. yeah. I said the original idea for it was to do it in the trailer and you started out the pottery wheel and then you pull back and then it's Leslie and Priscilla. And in a trailer, that was huge. That was just so funny because you could see people just, you know, the the girls in the audience would lean forward. Like, hey, this is cool. And the guys would sit back in their chairs, arms crossed. Uh, and then when it was Leslie Nielsen, the place just erupted. It was so great. You famously kept a tight rein on the scripts and the jokes, and apparently there isn't much improv in there, but there are a few, such as the, the slapping scene in Airframe, Lee Bryant, yeah. and apparently she said to keep it going. Is that right? Right. I think they were originally just shaking her, and she said, you should slap me. And I don't know if that was in the original. If it was in Zero Hour, we may have done it. Uh, because, you know, the airplane is based on, on Zero Hour, 1957 black and white movie, which has the same plot. And so in the script, it was just shaking the woman. And then the stewardess passes it off to Leslie and the Leslie and Leslie passes it off to someone else. And then the whole line of people that was added. 
I think Lee Bryant did add the slapping. She said, go ahead, you should slap me. She wanted to get slapped. So that was, and that, <laughs> that was for, for, for some reason, I, you could ask her shrink why, why she was. <laughs> I do love the fact that Leslie gets an extra one in just as he's leaving. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I, I love that. That is like, that's where, you know, that's where the comedy goes into what, you know, Jim Abrams and I always say that's essence. Yeah. Occasionally the movie will go into, it's the hyperspace of, of comedy. I love that. And, and I don't remember if that came from, if Leslie just did that or if we directed Tim to do that. Uh, but I, that was not in the script. No, it, it is just a little touch of genius. It still gets me every single time, yeah. just that second slap. That second slap, yeah, it's great. I love it. It's one of my yeah. favorites. Yeah, the other one I love is when Leslie, uh, you know, he says, what the hell is going on up there? And it's got the, just the feet <laughs> in, in, the, in, in, in the stirrups. And he's, he's holding a speculum. <laughs> and why, why he's giving this woman a pelvic, we, you know, <clears throat> we don't explain yeah. <laughs> I, do. I, I, I watched Airplane the other night because uh, my girlfriend hadn't seen it we were watching it together and that bit just came on and yeah. also the bit which I also really love and I've got to bring it up here that classic moment uh, they could be miles off course that's impossible they're on instruments oh yeah that's right Yeah, <laughs> that, I have to give you an applause for that one yeah. That's yeah. I, I've lost count of the number of times I've seen Airplane that scene still makes me howl just that, that hard cut to it <laughs> Right. Well, and I think that a lot of people, when they read the script, you know, the studios that turned it down, I think it's moments like those that they thought, well, this is just silly. I mean, it is silly, but and and if you think of a line like I am serious and don't call me Shirley, if Bill Murray says it, it would be funny, but it would be like 25 percent is funny. Yeah, you had to visualize it, and no studio executive could visualize it enough to greenlight it, except for, I mean, of course, Michael Eisner, who I don't know what he thought it was. I think he loved these airplane in trouble movies that he he had done a bunch of television movies at ABC during the seventies. I mean, the, the "Don't Call Me Shirley" line is probably the most iconic line in comedy. Mm-hmm. Every single person, when you say "airplane," that line is the first line that they will quote Does, yeah did this joke have a history prior to airplane where did this no. kind of joke come from well it, it came from zero hour because that's that's one of the straight lines in zero hour uh the doctor says can you fly this plane and land it and dana andrews the actor in zero hour says uh, surely you can't be serious and jim and jerry and i sitting around the, in the writing room watching this movie one of us, and we can't remember who, said, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. I mean, <laughs> I can't remember. I wish I could, but, but it also doesn't matter. It's not important to us who wrote what. It was important that the collaboration uh, survived. And that's the way to do it, is not to take individual credit. No, definitely. So I, I know we, we kind of briefly touched on it before and touching on this kind of cancel culture movement that's sweeping through everything at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with you yourself, David, obviously you as well as uh, Jim Abrams and your brother Jerry kind of ushered in like this new era of comedy in the 80s. Do you believe now that with the whole cancel culture, is this damaging comedy? Are we on a road to comedy becoming dull from everything being kind of just censored if someone doesn't oh no no we're not on the road to that at all it already is dull and horrible it's (laughs) yeah there's there's no road to anything (laughs) this is this is it was the end of movie comedy it's so horrible i guess there's some stuff on tv one thing i know that is funny on tv is the uh uh, the impractical jokers i don't know if you've seen them Mm mm-hmm uh, they're hysterical. They make me laugh. Movie comedy, it's like, it's not that people wouldn't think it, stuff is funny. I think it's the, in, in the studio boardrooms, they're frightened of the cancel culture. But I have a couple of scripts that, uh, you know, I don't think they're, they're not about current culture. So they may be able to get around that. I have a, I have a spoof that I've written with Pat Proft, James Bond, Mission Impossible, Born, I yeah. think, that, that genre. And then another one that's uh, based on film noir. And I, I don't think there's any current cultural 
references. These movies would go outside of that, but it's still hard to get a movie made. Yeah, it's definitely hard to get a movie made. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, David, I was going to ask what the future of House of Zucker is, but obviously we now know you've got some projects out there that we really want to see. We want to get back to that zany uh, Abraham Zucker comedy that we all know and love. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for film noir. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love film noir. Yeah. And well, that's what Zero Hour was. Uh, I, I, do you, are you familiar with that, with Zero Hour? Yes. I yes. know okay. of it. So, I haven't yeah. seen it, though. But I okay, well, it. what you can do is, uh, for a little primer for that, uh, go, go, just go to YouTube and put in Airplane Zero Hour. And people have uh, constructed scene for scene, side by side, of Zero Hour and Airplane. And it's pretty, uh, pretty instructive about how we did this movie. Okay. Well, now is our time on the show where we usually uh, go into the realm of Nominate 5. So, Steve, do you have a tune for us? You know what, Andy? I do. Now's the time to Nominate 5. Nominate 5! Yes, Nominate 5! Not 3, or 4, or 6, or 9. Now's the time to Nominate 5. David, don't run away. It's fine, come okay. back. Well, we got we got that over with, yes. <laughs> so basically, this is uh, the point of the show where we ask our guest every single week to nominate five movies for people to go and hunt out that they would personally recommend. And obviously, having a godfather of comedy here, we've asked David to nominate five comedies that are his personal favorites that he would highly recommend. Well, the, the best non-comedy film, of course, is The Godfather, but that we're doing comedies. So, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, the, the comedies that I love that people should see are, I, I would start with the Marx Brothers, um, Night at the Opera. Brilliant. Which is, I actually yeah, watched that the other week. Great, funny movie. And Duck Soup, which is also, you know, hysterically funny, but not as good of a movie. You know, it's kind of like Airplane and Top Secret for us. Um, and, and then Woody Allen's Annie Hall yes. is wonderful. You know, stuff that makes me laugh and think uh, Groundhog Day is brilliant. Yes, That's got to be one yeah, of the top. Of that movie. Tootsie is one of the top, top comedies. You know what else also made me laugh was uh, Bridesmaids and, yes, uh, and, and Bad Grandpa. That does surprise me. I I was like crying. It was so funny. Uh, I admit, I loved Bad Grandpa. I think we've actually done six there, and we didn't even do the countdown. Uh, No, we just went (laughs) right. Yeah, we we fail on that countdown every week. Was Bad Grandpa the one with Johnny Knoxville, or was that the one with Robert De Niro? Johnny, no, Johnny Knoxville. No, I have seen that one. I haven't seen the other one because watching Robert De Niro in something like that just makes me very very sad. Yeah, well, I I had never heard of bad grandpa and i hadn't really watched any of the uh jackass yeah and i i was really unfamiliar with that anyway so my son who was 12 at the time wanted to go to see bad grandpa with his friends and so i drove them there and i was intending to like bring along a book and a flashlight because i i didn't know how i was going to sit through this stuff but i started laughing and <laughs> charles had never seen me laugh in a movie cuz i don't you know i don't think anything's funny of course <laughs> it's like I, I have a terrible time at movies but i love that so it was i always think of that when i want to recommend some movies and also in going back to a night at the opera i believe you were involved with brain donors yeah the remake yes, kind of wasn't it? yes yes pat prof wrote that and uh, my brother jerry and i produced it yeah, that was pretty. That was a fun project. It's it's one of those fun movies that I always recommend to people, and they've never seen or heard of it. I don't think it did very well here in the UK. It didn't do well anywhere, but it was pretty funny. A little quirky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's definitely worth um, finding out for sure. A cu- it's, it's a it, now it's a it's a cult classic. Uh, which yes. all all my flops are cult classics. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to surprise you, Andy. I have actually seen it. Wow, now yes. that that is impressive because Steve has hardly ever seen any movies of worth. So it is amazing that you have actually found this very rare film. I have, yep. It's been a long time since I've seen it, so I can't remember much, but I have seen it. Well, David, thank you very much for the Nominate 5. Obviously, your book, Before the Invention of Smiling, is available on Amazon. 
anyone who's after a really good read or everyone who's after some really nice pictures to accompany their read, mm -hmm. they're going to really enjoy this book. We can't recommend it enough. So do track it down. I understand um, you're also starting to write your next book also. Yes, it's called Surely You Can't Be Serious. <laughs> and we've been working on this for years. And it's, it's an oral history told by Jim and Jerry and me just about how we started in Milwaukee in 1971 and ended up doing airplane, you know, nine years later. So that's getting to the point where we can start to send it out to publishers, you know, maybe in, a, in another few weeks. So we're getting close on that one. Well, we, we definitely would love to have you back when that book is getting ready to release and talk all about it and expand more. We also have uh, the 30-year anniversary of Naked Gun 2.5 this year. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Thanks for reminding me. I, yeah. Am I invited yeah. to any parties? I don't know. <laughs> well, we'd love to have a party here. We'd ha love to have you come back and talk about that uh, at yeah, some sure. point in the future. Uh, because oh, yeah. obviously there's there's so much career there to talk about and people definitely want to hear. We still have to talk about Top Secret and Naked oh, Gun yeah. and Hot Shots. And all Basketball. The way Basketball, yeah. which is actually one of my favorites. I do think that oh, is a thank really you. underrated movie. Yeah, thank you. The, uh, that's another one that was a, it's a cult uh, classic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, but also I'm, I've been pitching a television series based on basketball where we'd have wow. you know real right. teams, it, it, real teams around the country and it would be a spoof on pro sports. So, you know, I'm just working on all these things and eventually I'll get a yes somewhere. That would be absolutely huge. So all of you uh, executives out there with lots of money to spare, there's a series there that everyone wants to see. I do. That's I right. know that for a fact. Yes. Yeah. We'll be I'm, there. Yeah. I'm waiting here at my estate by my pool for the uh, <laughs> for somebody to say yes. <laughs> David, so, yes. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've had fun. Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I'd ever do this again, but you know, this was, this was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, once yeah. again, uh, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you again. Uh, we will put uh, links for uh, Before the Invention of Smiling on all the social media. So you will be able to see it there on the post accompanying this episode. So go and buy it. It's a really good read. Yes, Excellent. it is. Thank I've been you enjoying guys. it. But uh, if you're going to be ordering something from Amazon, then it might come in a little box. And then you could ask oh. yourself, what's in the box? 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 David's neighbors probably hate him right now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had respect for you guys right up until that. So. <laughs> oh, you think these segues are bad? You should have been here the other week. Oh, good God. <laughs> okay, Steve, explain what's in the box. Okay, the basic setup of what's in the box is that Andy has a box full of movies which are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. There are many, many films which I haven't seen, and he's going to pick one out of the box. If I have seen it, then it gets tossed to one side, another one gets picked out, until we have one that I haven't seen, and then I watch it the night before we record our next episode. This is true. David, if you would have heard the beginning of the show, and you probably will if you ever want to hear this ever again, last week Steve had to watch a movie about vaginal dentures, and he loved it, really. So, okay. And that was certified fresh, yeah. a movie called Teeth. So this week oh. I've just picked one out of the box, and Steve, you have to watch, if you've not seen it already, uh, Brian De Palma's 1989 movie Casualties of War. You get all the feel-good movies. Oh, yay, that sounds like an absolute hoot and a half. Yes, <laughs> and you can tune in next week to hear his thoughts on that. Yes, but you will. for this week, a huge thank you again to a good friend, David Zucker. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you, David. Sure, it was fun. And it's a goodbye from myself, Andrew Roger Carson. And it's also a goodbye from me. That's it, is it? Just that's, that's just that, okay. yeah, just going for that, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there some big playoff music? To there should be, yes. Yeah, <laughs> if you guys, you guys wrote those other bad songs, couldn't you write a bad <laughs> goodbye song? What you mean this? <laughs>